Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Access Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and your host for Media Maven's podcast. And I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. Hey, Joe, how are you? Very well, Sarah. Everything here is going well on a Tuesday morning. It's a, right? it's a good day. It's a little off our schedule. We're always in the afternoons, yes. but I'm super excited that we all woke up relatively early on a Tuesday for our podcast because we have executive chef Aaron Miller on the podcast with us. And Aaron is an executive chef. He's worked with some of the top chefs around the world. He's head of FNB and executive chef at the Mountain Lodge up in Telluride, which is, correct me if I'm wrong here, Aaron, it's one of the top snowboarding and ski resorts in the country. And it is in Colorado. So we are so excited to have you on our podcast this morning. Well, thank you, Sarah. Nice to meet you, Joe. Good to meet you too, Aaron. So it's so funny because like I, this is our like Arizona crew. We've had a few of these podcasts where we've had all AZ people and I am in LA, but Aaron, you're also from Arizona as well. And, you know, we've known each other forever. And it's funny because you ended up halfway through what you, you went to college there, but then you left to go to culinary school and you had this amazing restaurant out in Scottsdale. The next thing I knew I'm in LA and you're in Colorado and all over the place. Give us a little bit of background because I remember you in Scottsdale when you're executive chef at a restaurant out there. I mean, what made you go down the culinary track? Yeah, that's, that's kind of an interesting question. Well, while I was in school, I was a busser. I was a staff member front of the house at the Arizona Biltmore. And I enjoyed it, but I like the technical aspect of cooking. I like working with your hands. I like development and creativity aspects behind cooking. And then, of course, many development and working with people and that sort of thing. I just gravitated toward the kitchen. These days, though, I split my time between front and back of the house. So whether it's I'm one day as a food and beverage director, next day as the executive chef, I kind of split my roles a little bit. But then again, it's all about the restaurant in its entirety. It's about how service works with its food and vice versa. So it's all got to click. Otherwise, you know, I mean, there are a lot of confused restaurants that I've been to in the past that I've seen where... You know, the service quality doesn't exactly match what you're serving in the food and the pricing and whatnot. And people tend to be pretty sensitive to that. So having the control over the entire F&B program is kind of where it's at for a chef. Nice. Now, you've had some amazing experiences. You've worked with some top chefs in the industry. Who are some of the people you've worked with and what have you learned from them? I mean, were they the ones that inspired you to follow down this road when you started? Oh, geez. Okay. So when I started the Billmore in the kitchen, within the first year or two, I was quite literally thrown into the fire. I was working for, I mean, the Arizona Billmore at the time, there were two great restaurants in Phoenix. And at the time, it was the Orangerie and the Golden Swan in Gating Ranch. Those were the two heavy-hitting restaurants in Phoenix and surrounding cities. I was working for the Arizona Biltmore's Aragerie. Within a year or two of me being there, I'd already cooked for multiple presidents at the time. The Bushes had come in. In fact, 
George Bush came into the kitchen, introduced himself after dinner. Nicest guy. I mean, seriously, nicest family. And the Reagans had come in as well. From a culinary aspect, within that time frame, Jacques Poupin had been a, a guest chef in a restaurant for a couple of weeks. So early in my career, cooking professionally, I got to work with people like Jacques Poupin. I worked for uh, the executive chef of the hotel at the time was John Macon. I worked for the chef de cuisine at the time, which was, oh, geez, it's been a long time. I mean, I'm looking back to, I want to say 89. So, yeah, it's been a while. Scott Kloster was the chef de cuisine I'd worked for. I worked for the pastry chef at the time, Ruben Foster, who was actually a gold medal winner for the uh, U.S. Olympic team in Frankfurt, Germany in previous years. So, I mean, these guys were incredible at what they did. These guys actually shaped my career early on. They got me interested. They got me and they got me engaged into the culinary arts. And there was no turning back at that point. I got accepted to culinary school. And the first thing that happened, well, I was fired from my job and told to go work for another chef to learn more stuff before I went to culinary school. So at that point. I went to the Four Seasons in Philadelphia and worked for them for a while before culinary school, which at the time was one of the top five restaurants in North America. It was the Fountain Restaurant. And in fact, I had heard about it because I was driving to the East Coast, picked up a food and wine magazine, and they listed the top five restaurants in North America. So I went in and pretty much begged for a job from the executive chef. Uh, I think it was Jean-Marie LaCroix was the executive chef at the time. And yeah, I got in and worked there and then went to culinary school in New York at Culinary Institute of America. So you have mad cooking skills. And one of the things I love about you, since I've known you, was you're one of the very first chefs in North America, if I'm not correct, who did sustainable seafood. Yes. That's correct. You were the first one to figure out how to ship sustainable seafood or because I know sustainability right now, you know, carbon footprints, there's a lot of sustainable vineyards we've worked with. Explain what exactly you did because you're the first one to make that happen. Well, sustainable seafood was part of it. It was more of like sustainable proteins. Now, proteins meaning coming from the ocean or coming from the land. I had partnered at the time with a company called Ecofish. Now, Ecofish was out of Portsmouth, Maine. And what they did was they went in and found seafood direct from the fisheries, from the farms, from wherever that they believed was sustainable. Now, that meant that there was no bycatch issues, that the fish was was fished correctly, whether it was a single line, single hook, there were no nets involved. And what they did was they would set up as an intermediary between, let's say, me and the actual fishermen or families or or maybe it was a small business at the time. They would set up a distribution, actually, direct from the fisheries to me. A lot of times it was done through FedEx. Uh, An example of that was that the crab meat I brought in was from Washington at the time. And literally, by the time it was picked and sent to me, was literally less than 36 hours, 38 hours. So the the crab meat I was getting in didn't actually taste like crab meat to me when I first tasted it. 
It was very, very delicate. It was very mild. The crab meat that I had been used to eating, I had learned at that point was crab meat was age on it, that it already had started going south. And that was what I was used to. So getting seafood direct from source, not only of the environmental aspect, but just the but just from the uh, maybe from the direction of just the flavor of it and the texture was completely different than what I'd been used to. So in a way, Ecofish turned me on to great seafood. Now, at the same time, I was working with a company called Maverick Ranch. Now, Maverick Ranch did all of our chicken, all of our pork, all of our beef. Now, these guys, I found these guys because they were the ones that serviced the U.S. Olympic team. Now, that's important because when you're an Olympian and you're being tested for hormones, steroids or anything else, if it's in your food, it's going to be in your body. So you're going to be testing positive certain things. So we were using foods that were free of all of this. No hormones, no antibiotics, no steroids. The cows, the pork, the chickens, these were all pastured animals. They didn't see the inside of a barn or a facility of any kind. So, and the neat thing about it is you could taste it within the food. You could taste that happy animals equate to happy meats. So if these animals are happy, they lead a very stress-free life. You're going to get incredible meats. You're going to get what you want. As a chef, I always look at when I compose a plate, what is the end result? What do I want to have this plate look like, taste like by the time I'm finished working on it? So I always work backwards. So what I do is, okay, well, I want this steak to have a little blue cheese flavor on it of some kind. And I want it to maybe bounce off maybe some cured sort of flavor, maybe a bacon or something of that nature. You know, so I always work backwards. And when I work backwards, I always look at what is the heart of the plate. The heart of the plate is always the protein, just like the heart of a menu is always the entree. You know, as many chefs out there as, you know, I, I, I tend to see something where a lot of chefs put all their enthusiasm and all their creativity in their appetizers. To me, the entree is the heart of the meal, where a lot of your focus yeah, your focus should be everywhere on that menu. If you're putting your name on that menu, it's got to all work. But at the end of the day, your time is best spent working on entrees. I mean, people don't come in and I mean, the average person goes to a restaurant, they're always going to get an entree. Whether they get a salad, a soup or an appetizer or dessert, that's kind of up in the air. From a chef's perspective, everybody always gets an entree. So your time is actually really better spent on the entree. Now, what goes into that entree is as important as anything. So when it comes to sustainability in foods, it's not just the environmental impact of the foods that we're eating and the future of these foods, because it's important to have sustainable cuisine so that future generations that can enjoy the foods that we have ourselves. But it's important that the food tastes good. If the food's not good, people aren't coming back. So the sustainability aspect also enables you to serve really great food, food that's at its height of flavor, of texture, of color, and appearance, everything. 
So, I mean, environmental foods are really, I mean, they've always been really the cutting edge of cuisine in the United States and across the world. So, you're, okay, so this is amazing. So you've had such great experience from sustainability, all these great chefs you've worked with. You're now up at Telluride at the Mountain Lodge, which is a phenomenal lodge and resort up um, right in the middle of Colorado. What's going on up there? I mean, have you brought your southwestern roots of your cooking skills and flavors to Colorado? Because you're up there, you know, right now you're in winter season. I know chefs are really good at staying ahead of seasonal cooking and what's going on, what's trending. But you're up there in the middle of Colorado these days. I know you have the taco and tequila truck. So if anybody's up there skiing, they can just ski and ski out, but they can just stop and get tequila and tacos as well now. I mean, how right. are you guys building up? Was this because of COVID or how are you guys um, set up during all of this? Well, the tacos and tequila thing was something we actually started to discuss even before I was, began working here. The general manager and I had gone back and forth on having something near a ski run. And me being from Arizona, yeah, American Western cuisine follows me wherever I go. I mean, before I worked here, I was up in Bozeman, Montana, and that was a lot of fun. And American Western obviously works in Bozeman, Montana as well. I tend to gravitate toward American Western states. As far as towns are concerned, there are very few towns that are more American Western than Telluride, Colorado. Telluride is very American Western. People come to Telluride to experience not only skiing or mountain biking during the summer, but I mean, they come to experience genuine Colorado. You know, we're a little town. The neat thing about Telluride is, is we're harder to get to. We don't have everything. We don't have any fast food restaurants. We don't have any big grocery stores. We don't have any of that. When you come to Telluride, you're experiencing Telluride. And that is it. I mean, we do have a great restaurant collection up here. And it's not just in the Mountain Lodge. It's everywhere. I mean, you eat at a restaurant in Telluride, I guarantee the service is going to be great. And the food is going to be amazing. Restaurants up here are very competitive. And that we all have a bar that's set pretty high for ourselves. That, I mean, when people talk about Telluride, yeah, they'll talk about the skiing, they'll talk about the mountain biking, the fishing, but they'll also talk about the food and the restaurants that are up here. A lot of people I know of in Phoenix, if you ask them, like you can ask them their favorite pizza place in Telluride and guaranteed you'll have an answer. I mean, people know food in Telluride. What's interesting about Telluride is that, yeah, we are harder to get to, but since we're harder to get to, we have the shortest lift lines you'll ever see if you ever even see a lift line. I mean, they're just, locals here will literally, if they see a lift line, they go home, okay? That's kind of how we do it. So we don't have those up here. At the same time, you know, we have restaurants that are very engaging, you know, that do very unique things with food. I do the American Western thing because well, when you visit Colorado, you tend to want to eat what's around you, what the restaurants are good at. I mean, American Western cuisine, I'm not the only one doing it up here. A lot of restaurants are doing it. Probably about half the restaurants are doing it. You know, they all have that American Western attitude. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's, this is a really tight culinary community. 
And during COVID, it's actually really interesting. You know, we get to really work with each other on, you know, on keeping COVID numbers down and whatnot. So that's kind of an interesting side conversation right there. But I see that Telluride is interesting because a lot of the restaurants really do work closely together. When you uh, joined on with uh, Mountain Lodge there, what was your strategy going in there? I mean, what, what did you find and what did you want to be when you got there? Now, Mountain Lodge has always done well in food and beverage, and it's always showed growth, and we've always done really well. We always cater to our guests. You know, me, I'm always pushing the envelope. Like, what's next is always my big question. You know, so we're doing this thing out on the side called tacos and tequilas so that you'll be able to jump off the ski run, take off your skis, walk 30 seconds to a cooking and bar area, and you can order some tacos, fresh tacos, tortas, or there's even a flauto, a barbacoa on the menu. So, I mean, some really interesting stuff. We're always developing right now at night. We're trying something completely new. So we're running a four course prefix menu, but you get your choice of each course. So there's an appetizer course. You get a choice of appetizers. Then you have your soup and salad course. So you get to choose whether you want one of two salads or one of two soups. Then there's an entree course. Then there's a dessert course. And we're offering it right now. It's $65 a person. And it's probably about the best running deal right now in Telluride. Outside of, you know, there is a ton of creativity in the menu. I mean, we do have things like a beef carpaccio as an appetizer, a grilled artichoke, a brie quesadilla, and then moving on to soups. You know, I mean, it's fun to play with food, but, you know, at the same time, you kind of want to give them what they want. So, you know, when it comes to soups, yeah, we have a French onion soup. And, you know, and it's really funny. I'm waiting for that first person to get the soup and not say it's their favorite French onion soup of all time. So... There's that going for us. So what we do here at the Lodge is we kind of marry creativity with the classics and we bring it all together and what we think makes sense. So, you know, like when it comes to entrees, there's one entree that isn't American Western, but it's very related to American Western because its roots are very, it seems to be like, to me, Mexican food is very a part of American Western cuisine. Well, before there was Mexican food, there was Spanish. So I tend to gravitate toward a couple Spanish ideas. One thing is always a paella for an entree on a menu. I mean, after a day of skiing, if you want something light and hot, there's nothing better than paella. So, and beside that, nothing pairs better with wine than a good paella. There's really no rules to wine with paella. It's one of those foods out there that's extremely popular but there's really no rules when it comes to beverage when, when you're talking about paella. You can have a sangria. You can have a red wine, white wine. You can have a slightly sweeter wine. You can have a cocktail. It all works with paella. So, I mean, when we look at food at Mountain Lodge, we look at what it works with. Does it offer another perspective for our menu? Does it offer maybe a different market that we're not approaching with our menu? You know, so... If you want something lighter and you come into the restaurant, you know, we have a few options, you know, and some that even don't have a starch with them, you know, so you can get a meal that's maybe a little bit lower in carbs, you know, that'll make you happy. 
And it's not a meal that we've taken stuff out of ingredients or we've removed ingredients to make it lighter. We've intentionally made it lighter from the onset of composing this dish. So here's an example. We're doing an Alaskan halibut veracruz, which doesn't have a starch. It's served with sliced red onions, artichokes, olives, tomatoes in a lemongrass tomato broth. So it's very light, but the broth offers halibut can be a little bit of a dry fish. At some point, if somebody requested well done or something, it's going to be a very dry piece of fish. But that's where the tomato broth comes in. Just because you want your fish cooked well done doesn't mean you need to enjoy a dry fish. Nobody enjoys a dry fish. So we build components into each menu item that enhance that menu item, that bring it up to the level that we consider our level, our bar here at Mountain Launch. Now, has there been that one dish where you sit there and you come up with and you're saying, this is going to knock their socks off? But in the end, it didn't. I mean, not not because it yeah. didn't taste well, but is there one that, you know, you thought was really hit the mark and for some reason it didn't sell? You know, that happens a lot. You know, that happens a lot to a lot of chefs, actually. It seems to me like one thing I've had to overcome as a chef is get my tastes out of the way. Because at the end of the day, I'm not, it's not me out there eating every meal. We're trying to bring guests in. We're trying to enhance their vacation, their, their day, their, you know, we're, we're trying to, I don't know, I, I guess it would be almost, we're looking to inspire people with food. Okay. Okay. So my thing is, I mean, personally, I don't like mushrooms, but you'll see mushrooms on the menu. So I've had to get out of my own way a lot of times in composing menus. Have there been things that have not hit as well? Yes and no. A lot of times when I'm looking at writing a menu, if there's a menu that's engaged at the time and we have a working restaurant, what I'll do is I'll take ideas I have and run them as specials. Then I'll talk to each and every guest that gets a special to get their take on it. So, I mean, I talk to a lot of guests out in our dining room. I'm constantly out there talking to our guests. And I'm always getting feedback directly from our guests. Although, being the chef, a lot of people are pretty closed-lipped about talking to the chef. You know, they don't they don't feel like maybe they don't want to insult me. Or maybe they don't, you know, they, they, they want to have a positive experience. And throwing some negative, a negative reaction at the chef doesn't exactly help that. So I use my staff as well to get these answers out of people. It's been a long time since I've launched a menu item that hasn't quite clicked with the public. A lot of these are just tested, whether tested in that particular market, or maybe I ran it as a special and associated market to us. You know, maybe I ran something in Bozeman, Montana, that I think that would work here in Telluride, Colorado. Or I ran something in Del Mar, San Diego, that may actually work well in Scottsdale, Arizona. So, but if you look at a lot of these places, the markets are actually very similar to what people eat. You know, that people, what people want. You know, when you're talking about Bozeman, Montana versus like say Telluride, Colorado, it's very similar. When you're talking San Diego, California, compared to Phoenix, Arizona, yeah, people kind of eat the same way there too. You know, I mean, it's all climate-based to me. You know, it's all about activities. Like, what are people doing outside? 
What are they doing inside? You know, and what's the temperature like? And that determines most of what I put on a menu right there. So, yeah, I haven't got a lot of miss items in the past maybe decade when I discovered, yeah, hey, I can use specials to test things. So, yeah, I started doing that as a young chef. So, and I've kind of always done that. But I'm not the only one that does that. And I didn't invent the wheel. A lot of chefs out there do the same thing. So, I mean, you know, we all chefs feed off of each other. We all, you know, I mean, I constantly read about what's going on in Chicago, New York, L.A., you know, and what's working, what isn't working. You know, there's a ton of blogs out there that chefs go to, you know, I mean, offhand, Eater is a big one, you know, and they do each individual city. And it's fun to read about in each individual city and what they're trying and what's going on, especially with what's going on with COVID these days. You know, that's that's just a monkey wrench in entire restaurant business and food and beverage everywhere in North America. So we're all trying to feel our way through this. Although, you know, with the COVID thing that's going on with restaurants, the one profession that just kind of looked at each other and was like, well, COVID, okay. Well, we're all used to sanitizing. We're all used to clean kitchens. We're all used to taking care of people. So, you know, with COVID, we're just kind of stepping up our game with masks. I mean, quite literally, there really isn't a lot of changes to the way we do things inside of a kitchen when it comes to COVID. The restaurant, obviously, there's a lot more cleaning being done, alcohol and masks. But when you're looking at it from a perspective of what other businesses are experiencing right now versus the restaurant business, we're all kind of used to this. You know, we've done this before. You know, it's something that we've always done is a nice, clean kitchen clean restaurants and taking care of people and being concerned with their health restaurants, you know, a great restaurant is concerned with the health of their guests. So we're always looking for better ways of serving cleaner food and better foods. That's so, so funny because we were just talking about this because in California, they, you know, we were in shutdown mode and restaurants were outdoor only. Now they shut them down only delivery. As of yesterday, Gavin Newsom just, took everybody off stay-at-home order and said, our restaurants are now able to open outdoors only. And it was a big argument that, you know, they couldn't attribute COVID directly to the restaurants. But like you said, they've always had that standard of being clean, of being sanitized, or they get shut down by the city and find anyways, and it hurts them. But I think it's not so much the kitchen and the cleanliness it's the people that are attending that are drinking and eating and not wearing their masks. So we just opened that. I don't know how anywhere else is. Everybody's all over the board, which is interesting. But I love that, you know, you guys have gone through this up until you're right. And it hasn't affected you as much. And I feel like we're in a foodie, a foodie commercial now on the podcast. We have a quick question, though. Joe, I, I know you are awesome at barbecuing and craft brewing, but are you a chef? No. I don't consider myself one at all. <laughs> You're not at I, all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even approach that, to be honest with you. I mean, I cook, I enjoy it, but you know what? I, I am no, I'm not even the first step of that. I'm an awesome cook, just FYI. But so Joe, you had a really good question earlier, well, before we um, got rolling here. And there's such a miscommunication, the perception of, 
like people figure Mexican food, Chinese food, and they go traveling Italian food and they get over there and like, well, this isn't really Italian food because I've been to Italy, been over Mexico and it's just, it's a different culture. So I think it's an, a, more of Americanized here. So it's more palatable. But I, I think that's where you were going with your question to Aaron. Earlier. Yeah, my, my idea was, is that, you know, when you say Mexican food, you kind of do it an injustice because there are different types of Mexican food, depending what region you're in. You got Sonoran Mexican food, you have a Chihuahuan Mexican food, and they all have a different taste. They all use different ingredients. And it's like here in the United States, we have an American Western, we have Southern food, we have a uh, stuff that works well in the Northeast. And, and I'm sure that Aaron knows all of that when it comes down to food. But when, you know, you take a look at, is it really hard to, to teach people that there are different regions that have different tastes? You know, it's funny. First off, I think there's a little chef in everybody, especially with COVID. We all learned how to cook a little bit better. Even the chefs learned how to cook a little better. Guys, we're all stuck at home. I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, unless you have an Xbox going or I don't know, uh, a big giant closet full of puzzles, you're going to be cooking something. So, you know, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's I think it's really nice that people started getting into cooking a little bit more. You know, they're cooking for themselves. They're experimenting a little bit more. As a chef, it thrills me to see people get into food. OK, so and yeah, you're 100 percent right. So when you go to Mexico, there are different regions that have different foods, just like, you know, you have mountainous regions where you're going to see a lot of meats. You're going to see a lot of dairy. You're going to see a lot of cheeses. When you get closer to the ocean, you're going to start seeing seafood. You're going to start seeing lighter foods. You're going to start seeing maybe instead of cooking in butter, now you're cooking in olive oil or you're cooking in something that's a little bit lighter. So you know, it's it's interesting, like different, just like I was saying before, different parts of the country, different climates, different activities for people determine really what they're eating. Now, you know, in Mexico, I mean, to me, you've got you've got a lot of different cuisines all in one place. When you say Mexican food, you're really talking about a lot. But also keep in mind that Mexican cuisine is the youngest cuisine in the world as far as the national cuisine. Until Cortez got to Mexico, there was no beef, there was no pork, there was no cheese, there was no dairy. None of that existed. So when you look at Mexican food, to me, Mexican food is a ton of fun. A, it's the youngest cuisine in the world. I mean, a national cuisine. And it's exciting because of that. Number two, I mean, of all casual national cuisines in the United States, I'd almost say Mexican food is probably the most popular cuisine in the United States currently. I just, I think it is. I mean, but the flavors of Mexico are varied. Now, when you go to Mexico City, you'd think you were somewhere in Europe. I mean, the food is very, very nouveau. It's very fresh. It's very cutting edge, very seafood, very high end. You see waiters that are servers that are waiters that have been waiters and that will be waiters for the rest of their lives. Because in Mexico, in Mexico City, being a waiter is a really awesome profession. And people look up to that profession and people take it on for the rest of their lives. 
it's not something they're doing just to cover um, their education or whatever they're trying to apprentice or do something else. No, these are servers that want to be servers for their life. And they're pros. These guys are complete pros. If you visit any city in Mexico, make it Mexico City. It'll blow you away for its food, its service, everything. It's incredible. And then, of course, there is the alcohol aspect of Mexico. The mezcals, the sotals, and, of course, tequila. In fact, last year, tequila sales, from what I've heard, went up 60% above 2019. I've never heard of a spirit gaining in popularity that quickly over such a short time. It was time. the COVID I'm- spirit increase that was going on. And it's funny because I was just going to ask you as you're segueing, you are now getting to the whole tequila game because we were talking about doing tequila tastings and stuff and talking and getting more in depth into the tequila market. You really shifted into tequila in this past year or so with your knowledge and hence the tequila tacos and all this stuff. Yeah. Tequila and I go back pretty far. We go back to the late eighties. So yeah, I've, I've been involved with tequila here and there for probably about oh, almost about five years or so, seven years, somewhere in there. I've helped restaurants develop tequila programs, develop drinks and that sort of thing. Here at Mountain Lodge, yeah, we have a great tequila representation. In fact, we're going to be starting a uh, formal tequila tastings pretty soon at Mountain Lodge, where once a week you come in, you get to taste nine tequilas. But the kicker is with a tasting, if you leave tastings on your own or you go to a tasting, it's always good to eat something with it. Otherwise, there is alcohol in tequila and it will affect you at some point. Now, question is, is how do you combat that? So my thing has always been guacamole. The fats in guacamole will inhibit the alcohol getting in your bloodstream quickly. So I always serve guacamole, chips or something of that nature with tequila. When you taste nine tequilas, and you're not tasting an ounce of each tequila, not pouring nine ounces for any particular person at any time. I don't care how big you are. So my thing is, is, you know, you may taste nine tequilas, then they'll be like anywhere from a quarter to a half an ounce, depending upon the tequila. And if you want to try a little bit more, let's say. But my thing is, we're always blind. It's always a blind tasting. You have to explain each tequila, where it's from, why we're tasting it. And what makes it different than other tequilas? So I love tequila over mezcal typically because I like the delicateness of tequila versus mezcal. Mezcal is a freight train of smoke and pepper that just literally hits my palate. And it hits it really hard that I can't really taste much after that. With tequila, if you're in a vertical tasting, you can taste nine tequilas and get flavor out of each one of those nine if you're tasting vertically. So that's something that we should try at some point. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, tasting tequila, we all think of tequila. We all remember college. We all remember Jose Cuervo. We all remember Montezuma and those really bad experiences with tequila. All tequilas, well, there is a downside to tequila and that's after too many bad decisions. And that does happen. Although a lot of times I stop my guests before they get to those places. So, I mean, tequila to me is really interesting. It's a very delicate liqueur. But the the one takeaway with tequila is that tequila always has to be aged in oak. And it's always in an oak barrel. 
Now, what that oak barrel is, is up to each individual tequila maker. So a lot of them will use like a former bourbon barrel and like Espolone and Yeho Tequila. That's actually that company is owned by Campari, which actually owns wild turkey bourbon. So they finish. So they they finish their tequila for two months in wild turkey barrels. And it is a fantastic tequila. I mean, it's a great tequila to sip. I wouldn't exactly mix drinks with it. It's got some age to it. If you want to mix drinks with it and you want an Espolone, I would almost go silver or Reposado because you want that alcohol punch. Remember, the more alcohol you have in your tequila when you taste it, when you mix it to a cocktail, that just means that people are going to be able to taste that tequila. So if it's too strong, it's a good mixing tequila. Where if it's lighter and nuanced and rounded and beautiful, that's a good sipping tequila. Whether it's on the rocks or neat is up to you. Certain tequilas work really well neat. Some work really well on the rocks. I mean, it's all really interesting. And it's, I mean, tequila has grown in such popularity that scotch actually changed its rules in aging. There are scotches coming out right now that are aged in tequila barrels. That's a whole new thing. Chevis Regal just released a line of scotches that are actually aged in tequila barrels. I'm just Never laughing at Joe's it. face right now because this is so educational. <laughs> and honestly, I am super excited because we're going to do a tequila tasting podcast with you coming up in a few weeks as well. So again, we got to get Joe some samples so he could keep up with the podcast on that one. But it's just it's it's astounding how much knowledge you have on the tequila and I, I want to get more into this, but we do have an entire podcast dedicated to tequila with you, Aaron. But quick question is, you know, going to, we want to wrap up soon is I also know that people cook with alcohol. I mean, and as a chef, how much cooking with alcohol do you do? And do you use, cause I use red wine all the time when I'm cooking, but that's about the only alcohol I use. And what's up yeah, know- flavored stuff? It's interesting, you know, like my French onion soup, I actually use two alcohols for it at two different stages. I like the richness of red wine when it's in like a soup, but not necessarily too much wine, just a little bit in the background, a little that fruitiness. But at the same time, I like some residual sugar, like sugar maybe derived from alcohol. And in our French onion soup, we actually use red wine. And then we also deglaze a second time with bourbon. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in my French onion soup. It's not, it. I, I like the flavors to be layered in it. As far as cooking with alcohol is concerned, I use it constantly. Occasionally, I actually run tacos that I actually deglaze the carne asada with a little bit of Patron Citrage. And, okay, Patron Citrage is kind of like a Grand Meunier but it's made with oranges in Mexico by Patron. The neat thing about Patron Citrage is, whether it's the orange, the pineapple, the mango, or the lime, they use whole fruit. These aren't flavors they add. They actually use whole fruit in production. And it's actually, the price point is incredible. I won't make a margarita with triple sec anymore with Grand Meunier anymore, with Cointreau anymore, I use Patron Citrage for it because I think it's a better product. And it's a tequila-based product 
So I tend to gravitate that if I'm making a margarita, why would I want to put some weird liqueur in this? Let's just stick with tequila. Well, what's out there that we can use? And citrage is always the answer to a lot of those questions. When it comes to cooking with wine, and I mean, we all, I mean, I don't know if you remember ever seeing like all the cooking shows with, I mean, a lot of cooks out there will cook with wine. You'll see cooking shows. Well, if you can't drink the wine, then you can't cook with it. Well, I kind of agree and disagree with that. There are some wines out there that are really young, maybe, that I want to use with foods in foods that I necessarily don't want to drink because it's too, it's maybe too sweet or it hasn't been refined as long as it should in the bottle. You know, so to me, like cooking with beverage, there's always been, they've always been together. They've always been a part of each other. And that like cooking with wine or cooking, we have a mussels on our menu right now that we use vodka when we deglaze with it. Now there's a nice little punch to it, but then a little garlic, a little cream, and it's wonderful. And that vodka helps it along just a touch. It gives it like that nuance that people can't exactly pick up, but we're the only ones doing it. So if you want those mussels, you're going to kind of have to come visit us. So. <laughs> So before you wrap up here, two questions for you. What was the worst thing really quickly that you've ever made? <laughs> okay. Worst never thing do it made. again type of recipe. <clears throat> well, when I was a kid, my parents would go out on Saturday nights and our family called it everybody for themselves night. And you had to learn how to cook in our family if you wanted anything other than a bowl of cereal on a Saturday night. So when I was about eight years old, my sister and I decided, who was five at the time, decided we're going to make fresh pasta. We made fresh pasta. My parents came home to a kitchen that was destroyed. Flour everywhere. The pasta was awful. But at the time, I was really into food. I really liked trying different things. But yeah, we made the most awful pasta of all time. But my sister and I did eat it. So that yeah, was nice. What yeah. was the, um, your best recipe? Quickly, your best. Best thing. recipe. Best recipe. You know, I would almost say my best recipe is probably paella. You know, there's a very specific approach to paella. And the thing is, it's such a versatile entree. You can have it at the beach. You can have it in the mountains. You can have it anywhere. And the beverage doesn't matter all that much. It goes with everything. I mean, it's really hard to find an entree or some kind of food, whether it be entree, dessert, soup, salad, dessert, anything that goes with as much beverage as a great paella will. Yeah. And it just, it opens up that if somebody orders paella, they can order just about anything from the beverage menu and it's all going to be great. You know, I mean, there's very few foods that I can think of that marry as well with, with beverage as well as paella does. Yeah. Okay. So, so funny. So my best, best thing in the universe I'm obsessed with, I have two that I'm really good at chicken coquevin, which is just outstanding. And my lasagna recipe was Sunday sauce. The worst thing ever was when I was in, High school or eighth grade. Now, I was, we were in Phoenix. What happened? My mom was in the hospital, surgery, and I decided 
I'm going to cook for the family and my dad. I think I made half-baked jello, half-baked everything. It was the worst thing in there. It was like jello with layers of so much crap in it that I thought looked cool on an Adder TV. It was the biggest joke. It'll never happen again. That and lobster fettuccine with cream sauce will never make again. But I, you know, but, but my chicken cook of lasagna clearly outweighs it. Joe, you're not a cooking person, but I know you barbecue. Best and worst thing you've ever made. Yeah, I want to hear from Joe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my best is an Alfredo sauce for uh, chicken. I love, I I can, I can knock that out of the park. Do you I, use I, vodka I, in that? Do you use alcohol? No, I don't use alcohol. No, I, I think that is, you use unsalted butter. You use uh, a good amount of cream. I mean, it, it really goes well. Yo, Plus, you also need spices in it. Joe, do you use an egg yolk in your Alfredo sauce? Yes, I do. Okay. That's old school, man. I'm proud of you. That's Thank a you. good one, man. What's what's the worst thing you've ever made? Uh, worst thing I've ever made was a rice dish that was cooked in a pressure cooker that <laughs> became soup. <laughs> Did you eat it? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my God, Aaron, I'm so glad you came on. Any oh, like great. Any like like this is like a total foodie show. And any last like tips or words of wisdom? Like you were so inspired growing up to be a chef and just so impressed with following your career and where you are. What's real quickly your bit of advice to anybody okay. out there who's thinking about becoming a chef? I've got two pieces of advice that I tell everybody. First piece of advice. When you go grocery shopping, never go hungry. Yes. Never enter a grocery store when you're hungry and you're going grocery shopping. That is not the way to do it. Have a list, have a plan. It's just like, it's just like a professional kitchen to me. Have a plan. There needs to be a plan. There's always a plan. Number two, know who you're cooking with or you're cooking for or you're, yeah, I mean, it's really important. I mean, that's a cheat sheet right there. If you're cooking for a group of people, if you're cooking for your family and none of them like mushrooms, don't cook with mushrooms. You know, it's really simple. But, you know, it's also that it's always nice that if you're cooking with friends or for friends or family, when they ask you, can I bring something? Have them bring beverage. Okay, that's really cool, but it also points you the direction you're going to take the food. That if they're bringing red wine, they're like, oh, we'll bring something to drink. Oh, how about a couple of bottles of red wine? Boom. Now you're moving to red wine territory. So you're most likely not going to do salmon because a red wine will make salmon, or when you're eating salmon, red wine will taste like aluminum foil in your mouth, more or less. It doesn't hit the right notes, it doesn't taste right. So you know, when people bring beverage, they're kind of giving you a little glimpse into what they want for dinner or what they want for lunch. And I've always used that as like a way of gauging what I'm actually doing for people. Um, my favorite thing to cook, honestly, isn't lunch, isn't dinner. It's always been breakfast or brunch. I love those two meals. That is my favorite time because it's the one time. I mean, yeah, you can relax at dinner. But on a day off, if you're on a weekend or your day off is that day, I guarantee the longest meal you'll have if you make any one of them will be breakfast because you're going to take your time. 
then, you know, you're not going to clean the table immediately. You're going to sit there. You're going to nosh and pick at stuff with friends. I mean, to me, but it's also very related to paella. When you make a paella, you set it right in the middle of the table and you give everybody a plate and they're serving spoons everywhere, wine, and everybody just has at it. Just like breakfast or brunch. You know, to me, I love serving family style when it's me and my friends, family. Everything's family style. Everything's an event when it comes to food. I mean, to me, it's always knowing who you're cooking for. Nice. So I'm super excited because so we're going to have you back on. But the next time we're going to have you on, I'm going to be with you live up in Telluride, talking to you with tequila tasting, talking to you about the resort, some people in you know Telluride and just really getting a good feel of what it's like, the life and day in the footprints of a chef. So I'm super excited to have you back on in a few weeks live to go through that. But um, until then, if anybody needs to reach out to you, they want to know where you're at, to come up with their Telluride, want to taste anything, tacos and tequilas, what's the best place for people to go to to get more information on where you're cooking and the resort? Well, they can always go to our website, mountainlodgetelluride.com. That's obviously, that's our website. It'll have a ton of restaurant information, information about me and what we're doing right now. Now, that's actually the best place to go. And if you need to contact me directly, there's information on the website to do that as well. Perfect. So excited to see you soon on our next live podcast with you. Are you going to bring Joe with you? I may have to talk to Joe about that. (laughs) We're doing a series of this. I'll be out snowboarding. He can run the podcast. I'll be the guy back home, you know, kind of anchoring the whole thing for you. You'll be doing the tequila tastings with us for sure, though. <laughs> I've had tequila that you could power the space shuttle with. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've, I've had that tequila, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, well, then after our tequila tasting podcast, Joe, you'll be a yeah. tequila aficionado. I'm super excited. Aaron, thank you so much for starting your day with us. Joe, thank you so much. Having fun. This is Sarah Miller from Media Maven Podcast. Looking forward to seeing you guys live and tell you why with Aaron and Joe in a few weeks. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.